Shalom. We're on part three of Exodus 39, or lesson 39, in the series, The Gospel According to Moses, Exodus. We left off by ending at verse 12 in chapter 14. Let's continue with the rest of the chapter. So starting at Exodus 14, verse 13, But Moses said to the people, Do not fear, stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. Now this is a real puzzling statement. Why are you crying out to me? When you put it in context, Moses is talking to the people. He's not talking to God. And so uh, Jewish scholars uh, and Christian scholars uh, have struggled with exactly this phrase and a lot of different discussions and ideas and views but one of the things that I noticed as I took a look at uh, Dr. John Kareed, who is that uh, Christian evangelical Bible scholar. He is an Egyptologist. He's an archaeologist. He's a renowned theologian. And he not only wrote his own Torah commentary, but um, he is also the chief editor of the Archaeological Study Bible from, from um, Crossway Publishers. But in his Torah commentary, in Rabbi Joseph Heschel's commentary, the Orthodox Jewish commentary, the JPS Torah commentary, all of them come to a conclusion that it's as if God is saying, listen, Moses, I don't want you to pray. I want you to get going. It's not the time for prayer when you're in danger, but a time to act. Now, in a sense, I get this. Just recently, my daughter who lives in North Dakota, um, North Dakota experienced a major, major blizzard. Snow, wind, freezing rain. And I remember my daughter calling me and saying, oh, Dad, please pray. The trees are bending over so much because of the heavy snow, and everybody is afraid that the power went out. Well, we prayed. Then the power went out, and we prayed again. But she didn't sit around. She had camping stoves, and she was able to cook with the camping stove. She had her propane heater. She was prepared just in case the power went out. She even told me, listen, uh, I can't call you because I need to preserve the power on my phone because I don't have electrical power to charge it back up again. And we agreed to that I would check with, in with her every couple of hours. So indeed... We prayed, but we also acted. We used our God-given common sense. God wants us to use our mind to make sure that when we're in danger, yes, pray to him and ask him, but it's also the time to act. It's just like Hezekiah. You can read this in 2 Kings chapter 20, especially verse 20, or 2 Chronicles 32, and verse 30, Babylonians are going to attack under Nebuchadnezzar. No, 
it was the it was the Assyrians, excuse me, not the Babylonians. They were going to lay siege to the city, but he knew that that Sennacherib and the Assyrians were going to attack. But he didn't sit there and just pray with Isaiah, pray, 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 and let's wait for the Lord to do something. Oh, pray? Yes, of course. But Hezekiah acted. And he built an amazing water tunnel to bring the water from the Gihon Spring into the city, to the Pool of Siloam. And it was hidden underground so that even in the siege, if it was going to be a week long, a year long, or whatever, normally those sieges in ancient times were for an extended period of time, that they would have plenty of water and the Assyrians could not get at it. So once again, Hezekiah probably prayed with Isaiah, the prophet. Isaiah was with him. But it's just like in this verse as well. The Lord saying to Moses, why are you crying out to me? That the scholars today seem to say God is saying, okay, it's time to stop praying and start acting. So we continue. Verse 16, as for you, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it and the sons of Israel will go through the midst of the sea on dry land. As for me, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. Once again, we come to the word, Chazach. He's going to give courage to Pharaoh's, not his heart, his mind. God is going to be doing something to Pharaoh. He's going to present evidence and facts and real experience so that Pharaoh is going to have his mind set. We're not seeing what Pharaoh saw. And what we're going to try to do is go into that to try to capture, again, the ideas of those times putting the Bible in its historical context and to answer the question, what did Pharaoh see? What was part of his mindset? What did God use, perhaps, to convince Pharaoh's mind to go in into that amazing valley of the sea that was created by the wind? So in verse 18, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I am honored through Pharaoh and through his chariots, and his horsemen. And remember, God is about to do something, and the Egyptians are going to live it, they're going to see it, and thus they're going to be experiencing God, experiencing Him. And this is Yada. It's biblical knowledge. And God is going to be honored, kavod again. They're going to see His heaviness, His weightiness. He's not only the God of Israel. God is going to teach them that he is Elohim, Elohim Chacholam, the God of the universe. Verse 19, Then the angel of God, who had been going before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. The angel of God, the angel of the Lord. Now, this is interesting. The rabbis would say the angel of the Lord, the angel of God, is not God. Prager has said it in so many words. 
they dismiss. And it's very difficult for me to see how they dismiss the very words of God. Torah is precise. The angel of God, is, the angel of the Lord is God. Go to take a look at Exodus 31, verse 21. It says, the Lord led them. And here we have the angel of God led them. The Lord led them. The angel of God led them. Who's the angel of God? The Lord. Now, this is a manifestation of God. So we can actually behold him physically. It's a manifestation. It's a way that we can see God and not die. He tells, we're, we're not there yet. This is in Exodus 33, verse 20. God tells Moses, if you see me, you're going to die. But here's a manifestation of God, this angel of the Lord. We have the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. The angel of the Lord appearing to Moses in the burning bush, and it was God. A manifestation because Moses didn't die. Now you see this in lesson 32 of the Genesis series, the Gospel according to Moses. I've linked you to that so that you can actually study the concept of the angel of the Lord that the Torah, not me, not my view, not my opinion, says that this is God. Now what I find fascinating is this. Today, we as Christians, the church has the dogma of the Trinity. Three persons in one God. Now in Greek, not English, the word for person is prosopon. The, the, the uh, uh, Strong's number is G4383. Now when you study the word prosopon, which is the Greek word for person, like three persons in the Trinity, prosopon does not mean person. It means face. Now, the early church fathers, obviously, were writing in Greek and in Latin. Person? They're using the word prosopon. It could very well be that what they were getting at, perhaps in the 2nd century A.D., the 3rd century A.D., when using the word prosopon, they said this is a face of God, a manifestation of God, where we took it as person. Now go with me on this. I think it helps me understand the Trinity in a deeper way if we take a look at the word prosopon and how it probably was used in 200 and 300 A.D. by the very church fathers. Jesus talks about in Matthew 18.10 that you will see the face of my father. The Greek word there is prosopon, which is also used for person. The face of my father, a manifestation of my father. Now we might say, you're going to see the personhood of my father. My father is one person of the Trinity. Now we can go to um, Exodus 33, 20, where God said, you cannot see my face. However, the Hebrew word is pane. Pane is the plural possessive 
of the Hebrew word panim. Panim is faces. However, it changes its ending when you're saying faces of somebody. So faces of God, the ending will change to pane, which is the plural possessive. So what's God telling Moses? If you see my faces, all my faces, if you see my totality manifestation, you will die. His real appearance. We cannot see the totality of what makes up God. We might say the persons of God. We can't see this. We can't see all three. In, in terms of the way we would understand it, using the idea of the word person. Jesus says in John 14, verse 9, he's talking to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Wait a minute. If I've seen Jesus and I've seen the Father, I've seen God. How come I didn't die? Because Jesus is a manifestation. He's one of the faces of God. The angel of the Lord is a face. It's a manifestation of God. So too is Jesus. So, person, I got it. And you may still want to say Trinity, three persons in God. But when I understand this concept of manifestation, and that God did this. He did this in the Old Testament. A manifestation of God so that we can actually experience him physically. To me, when I take the Trinity and I talk about the three faces of God, right from the Greek, to me, it, I can grasp things a little bit better. The manifestations of God. And Jesus is God. And he's a manifestation. that He lived as a man, dressed as a man, ate as a man. We experienced him, yada. The angel of God. So we continue. So it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel. This is the cloud. And there was the cloud along with the darkness, yet it gave light at night. Thus the one did not come near the other at night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land so the waters were divided. The sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on the dry land, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Then the Egyptians took up the pursuit, and all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen went in after them into the midst of the sea. The key word here is the wind. The Hebrew there is ruach. Strong's number H7307. Now what's interesting is ruach, wind, is the same word used when we describe the Holy Spirit in Hebrew. Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. This is interesting. Also remember in Genesis chapter 1, the Spirit of God, the Ruach, moved over the dark sea. No, he hovered. He hovered over the sea. 
I just find it interesting that here we have the wind and the sea. And back in Genesis, we have the wind, the ruach, and the sea. Now the wind for an Egyptian like Pharaoh is the god Shu. I have a link for you so that you can actually read more about the god Shu. This is real history. It's not a view. It's not made up. Shu is the god of the wind. So if you go to the website, www.lightofmenorah.org, remember menorah is spelled M-E-N-O-R-A-H. If you go there and you will see the picture for Lesson 39, Part 3. And underneath there, you'll find that link, so further reading on the God Shoe. I'll have links for you there. God Shoe, for instance, he held up the sky. And that's the God Newt, so he was helping another God the sky god. It's also the fact that he's the protector of Ra, the sun god, during Ra's travel, Ra's travel during the night. He went into the darkness, the place of the dead, during the night. And it was night when the wind started. This is just so cool. It was part of Ra's journey. Pharaoh knew this. On top of that, the Hebrews knew this. The Hebrews had assimilated into the Egyptian culture. And when this wind started, all of a sudden, I mean, they they probably were wondering, what the heck is going on? This is the Egyptian god Shu. And the Egyptian god Shu is making a way through the sea? And Shu, the wind god, blew all night. This is from Pharaoh's perspective. This is from the Egyptian understanding. So you can see that Pharaoh's mind, his heart, when he sees this, when he sees the god Shu blowing all night as Ra is journeying, journeying through the underworld, that his, he's saying, look at this. Shu is doing this. Could it be that he is looking at this and saying, our God is helping us? It seems very probable when you put this event in its historical context. How did God convince Pharaoh's mind to send his army through? It's likely that Pharaoh is looking at this and Shu made a dry path in the sea and the Hebrews knew it as well. Because like I said, they had bought into that pagan culture. So Shu made that dry path so Pharaoh's army could overtake Israel. Yes, there's the turmoil of the sea. The chaos. For Pharaoh's mind, he's saying, wait a minute, look at this. Our God is bringing order, ma'at, out of this chaos giving us this dry path. This, it just fits the Egyptian mythology to a T. In verse 23, let me read it again, then the Egyptians took up the pursuit, and all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen went in after them into the midst of the sea. Took up the pursuit, the Hebrew word is radaf. 
Again, Strong's number H7291. So when we go to the Gesenius lexicon, Radaf gives us a picture of following after quickly, following in such a way that there's no hesitation, no fear. This makes sense. So in other words, they took up the pursuit? No. They went after them and they did it quickly. There was no hesitation, no fear, and it makes sense. The Egyptians saw their mighty god Shu, the wind, giving them victory. Shu held back the chaos. But our god did this. It was a setup. He was using their false notions of their gods to actually come against them. And it's daybreak. As we go into verses 26 and 27, So here we are in verse 24. At the morning watch, the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve and he made them drive with difficulty. So the Egyptians said, let us flee from Israel for the Lord is fighting for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may come back over the Egyptians over their chariots and their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak, while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. Then the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. It's daybreak. Their ultimate great god, Ra, is resurrected. He was protected by Shu all night. It's sunrise. Verse 28, the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them, not even one of them remained. Right at sunrise. Now God said in Exodus 12, verse 12, that he will execute judgments against all the gods of Egypt. Remember the first encounter? And I'm not talking about when God ordered Moses to use the staff to change the Nile into blood. No, it was the first encounter. And that is where the rod of Aaron was changed into a snake. And the rod of Aaron ate the rods of the Egyptian magicians. And you can go back to that lesson really seems to be an attack against Uraeus, the cobra goddess, who is the protector of Egypt, but especially of Pharaoh. Right then, little did Moses know it, little did Aaron know it, little did we know it, because we don't understand the Egyptian culture, that all the protection on Egypt had been removed. Pharaoh's army charged into the valley of the sea that they thought was created by Shu, their wind god, and they had no protection. It wasn't Shu. It was the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob and the God of Israel, the creator God, the God of the universe, the only God. And the victory of Yahweh is complete, just as he said it. 
And now we see the manifestation of his kavod. The manifestation of his ultimate heaviness, his weightiness, his absolute awesomeness. Absolute! None greater. The manifestation of his ultimate glory. Now there's some interesting things to consider. Because this testifies of Jesus. We take a look, and back in Exodus 4, verse 22, God tells Moses to tell Pharaoh that Israel was his firstborn son. Not sons, his firstborn son, singular. And we could say, okay, we understand how all of that happened. Israel comes from Abraham and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah did have a sexual encounter and they had a son that son was Isaac the child of promise and it was a miracle God had entered into that situation there was a miracle there's a woman involved who cannot have children now listen to this Israel is saved from the slavery of Egypt and from death at sunrise they're saved by the wind of God. Haruach. In other words, we could say it's they're saved by God's Spirit. But wait a minute. Jesus. He's the firstborn son of God the Father. But he's the firstborn only begotten son. Certainly the difference between Isaac and Jesus is pretty clear. Mary did not have a marriage relationship with a man. Joseph married her later. She had Jesus begotten by the hand of God. Unbelievable! And in Romans 8 verse 11 and in 1 Peter 3 18 we get the idea that who was the one who raised Jesus from the dead, but the Spirit of God, Haruach, the crossing of Yom Suf, testifies of Jesus as the firstborn son of God Israel at daybreak was saved from death and slavery by God's wind, by God's Ruach, by God's Spirit the firstborn son of God, his only begotten son, at daybreak on the first day of the week, rose from the dead in the power of God's Spirit and the victory of Jesus was complete. Just amazing. Starting in verse 29 to the end of the chapter, but the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea and the waters were like a wall to them on the right right hand and on the left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Believed in God? Believed in Moses? Is that the purpose of what was going on? In other words, hey, Israel, take a look what I just did. Now you can believe in my existence. 
The Hebrew word there is Aman. Strong's number is H539, and it doesn't mean believed. It's the same word used in Genesis 15.5 when it said that Abraham believed in God and it was credited to him as righteousness. No, the Hebrew word there is Aman. And Aman means to stand, to be supported by, to be propped up. And the word faith comes from Aman. The word faith is Imuna. It comes from this. It's a picture of a child being carried by the father. This is not belief, but it's total reliance and trust in God. So when we go back in verse 31, we should say that Israel now had total reliance and total trust in God. And on top of that, in Moses. Israel now saw that what God said he meant, and they could rely on him to keep his promises. Ve ya amenu, be yave. And like Dennis Prager adds comments to this, and he said, the destruction of the army of Egypt was not to show God's existence. It's not to show that God was real. No. It's to show that God will do what he promised he said, and you can take it to the bank. And Moses too. They believed in Moses. In other words, they relied on Moses' word. They trusted in Moses' word. Why? Because he's a prophet like of the Lord. He's God's spokesman. God said this in Exodus 4, verse 12. He says, I'm going to give you what to say and teach, which means Moses is a prophet. A navi in Hebrew, a prophet. Not just a predictor. We've got this. I mean, our understanding of prophecy today in the 21st century is, is, is all predictions of the future. Prophets don't predict that much. They predict, but not that much. Their role is to be proclaimers of God's word. And on top of that, in Judaism, Moses was a prefigurement of the, a prefigurement of the Messiah. See Moses? No Moses? You'll understand the Messiah. We've talked about this in the past before. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, Moses is teaching us, and he said, this one that's coming, he's going to be a prophet just like me, and we know that's a prophecy of Jesus. If you study the New Testament very carefully, Yeshua says it time and time again. He was sent by his Father, and he was given the words to speak by his Father. Jesus is the prophet of Deuteronomy 18.15, just like Moses. And all of this definitely connects to the truth of Jesus' words. Now we read in chapter 14, verse 31, right at the end, that they believed in the Lord and in his servant. And then we read in John chapter 6 verse 29 when Jesus said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him and whom he has sent. 
It's almost as if Jesus is quoting or using Exodus 14, verse 31. The amazing truth of what Jesus taught in John 5.39. All scripture testifies of me. His word. All the way from Genesis 1.1 to Revelation 22.21. Testifies of our Lord. And the victory in Jesus is complete. See you in Lesson 40. Shalom.